are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my reviews and interviews in print and online columns around the globe, but every week you can find me right here at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time on Adrenaline Radio, going behind the lens and below the line. And my trusty sidekick is here today. Are you not trusty sidekick? Uh, trusty, no, but I am here. Okay, the untrusty hey, sidekick. I like that. Bri- <laughs> Brian is here. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Debbie. So we have we have a very fun show today. A show we we've got two incredible guests. One whom I'm very very excited to talk to. Uh, first of all, we're going to have actor John D. Hickman with us. Um, you may not know John by name, but I guarantee you, when you see him, you will know him. Um, started out acting in True Blood, became part of Joe Manganiello's Wolf Pack on the show. Uh, moved through several other TV shows and is on the big screen right now. He's on the big screen and, and in in limited release, and then also video on demand and soon DVD and Blu-ray with Pierce Brosnan in IT. He's in King Cobra with James Franco. November 11th, he's got another film coming out, Welcome to Willits with Dolph Lundgren. Um, a pretty, pretty nice resume that we're going to talk about. And at the half hour mark, very excited to have this director with us, Brian J. Ter- um, Terwilliger. He has a new documentary out, Living in the Age of Airplanes. This is a must-see, absolute stunner. It is available tomorrow on DVD, Blu-ray, iTunes. There's a soundtrack composed by James Horner uh, that is beyond stunning. That is also available tomorrow. And Harrison Ford narrates the documentary about airplanes. How perfect is that? So we're going to talk to Brian at the half-hour mark um, about this spectacular spectacular documentary and all of the bonus features that you're going to find on the dvd and the blu-ray and you know we might hear a little bit more from my exclusive interview with jeffrey dean morgan but you know so what's what's been up brian you know last week uh, i think was my first week back right yes yes because uh i didn't get to tell my story so i went up northern california yes tell your story uh nothing happened that was it that's exciting. Well, no, I, I I got lost in San Francisco, which was cool. Uh, if if you guys want to, if you guys live in Los Angeles and have never been in San Francisco, just close your eyes and pretend it's San Francisco, and that's basically it. If you're in Los oh. Angeles, it's it's San Francisco. Besides, the only difference is that it's just a little bit colder. I was a little disappointed by that. How Los Angeles, how Los Angelesly it was. There wasn't there wasn't too much of a difference, but I had a great time. I met a lot of friendly people. And I definitely missed the program. I was going to call in, but I was in such a shoddy area. I didn't want to call the You drop. know, and I, I've been up to San Francisco several times when I've been up there for Pixar. Yeah. And, yeah, cell service is spotty in some of the areas. Especially when you're driving back home. There's, like, some areas where you just completely lose service. Well, you know, I do not use my phone and drive. Well, no, neither. Well, I was passenger, so I don't drive. Oh, well. Yeah, okay. I, I, don't, I don't drive. Well, I do drive, but in, in this case, I was the Chewbacca of the trip. I was okay. I was uh, misguiding everybody with my inability to tell my, the difference between left and right. Because if I say left, you've got to watch where I'm pointing my fingers because sometimes I'll go left. So, for, you're, so you're one of those people that I despise on the roads. Yeah, I'm bad. I'd rather have the uh, like a Google Voice or Siri leading mm-hmm. you because they're more reliable than I'll ever be. That's that's pretty scary, Brian. It is. It's it's terrifying because I'm the one that that I I'm not. I don't get lost. I just give bad directions. That's it. I can get you give me somewhere to go. I'll get there. <laughs> I'm great at finding like locations. It's just I'm bad at giving directions. Like I remember. This, oops, excuse me. I remember this one time in particular. I think it was with you, or with another program. I think it was with you though. No, it couldn't have been with you because. You don't have that many people come in because you're nice. You don't make them drive out to. No, I do uh, not. I do not make people drive to Whittier unless they really want to come to Whittier. Yeah, uh, this one show one time they had a guest and they handed me the phone. They're like, "Well, they're on this street. On this street, can you can you guide them?" And I was like, "Sure." I was like, "Do, do you see the McDonald's?" <laughs> and they're like, "I think we drove by." And I was like, "Yeah, there's a couple McDonald's in the area, so that's not going to help." 
You know, that's how I give directions. Landmarks. That's the best way to do it, but the problem with McDonald's, Mc- that's not a good landmark. There's too many of them. There's too many. Well, if you've never been to Whittier, then you don't know necessarily what landmarks are coming up either, which that's, is the issue. So you need to have some kind of a general general idea. But you know, while you were on your trip and then this past week, you know, here I was sitting there with Benedict Cumberbatch and Tilda Swinton Yeah. on you- Friday. You showed me photos for a, for a lovely a lovely press junket for Doctor Strange. You're going to get to hear uh, some of my exchange my exchange with Tilda next either next week or the week after Doctor Strange opens November fourth. And let me tell you, since the review embargo lifted, I can honestly say uh, publicly now it is the best origin story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the special effects um, Scott Derrickson director has taken this to new heights um really pushed the envelope with new technique uh and new ways of using the luminescence of light so you're in for a real treat when dr strange opens on november 4th but as i said either next week or the week after we're going to hear some of my conversation with tilda and also saturday mel oh yeah you mel yeah mel yes Gibson. I yes, I have been a diehard, a diehard Mel fan. Of course, not the same franchise. Um, we first met on Le- on Lethal Weapon, as a matter of fact, in nineteen eighty three. The very first Lethal Weapon. That's a good movie. Um, and you know, Hacksaw Ridge. This is the best picture of the year, hands down. There is nothing coming up that I think is going to top it, at least for my money. When you look at the production values, the editing, the sound design, John Gilbert's editing is just off the charts. It is insane, the acting. And Mel is a big proponent of doing everything practically in camera when he can. And here again, there's new technology that came into play, uh, a bomb box that now allows explosions it now allows actors to be within four feet or so of explosions. So instead of green screening, they can actually be that close. So you're getting a visceral real reaction when things explode. And in a movie that is set on Hacksaw Ridge during World War II on Okinawa, you know, explosions are, are what it's all about. But in a, it's an amazing story. We're going to talk more about that in a couple weeks. And it also comes out on November 4th. So, guys, mark your calendars now for November 4th because it is going to be a blockbuster weekend for movies. I'm just thrilled with both of them. I was going to mention if you only consume the program audio-wise, you should check out the video because some of the Doctor Strange stuff as well as the Hacksaw Ridge stuff that you have on the desk is is awesome to look at. Yes, our, our lovely tablescape. I'm very excited. That, thank you. Thank you, Marvel and Disney for some swag again the other day. And I'm very happy I got the Doctor Strange Marvel Legends series. Yeah, I was looking at the back of the box, and they have the astral projection of Doctor Strange, which looks just as cool. Yeah. Uh, which I, I, I love merchandise. If anything, like I've said before on the program, <laughs> I love when Disney... I love that Disney has a uh, ownership of, of properties like Star Wars and Marvel because the abundance of, of these products for these brands, it's everywhere, and I love it. I, I think I, when people give Kiss a lot of slack for putting their merchandise on everything, I love it. Gene Simmons, one of the smartest businessmen around. Give me give me everything Marvel. Give me Captain America uh, shoes, Give me, which I saw at Disneyland. Give me <laughs> Spider-Man uh, Mickey Mouse ears. And you know what? Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to get you, but I saw some pretty good Rogue One stuff at Disneyland. They're oh starting my to God. roll out a lot of cool cool merchandise for, for Rogue One. And I saw something where I was like, Debbie has to have this. Okay. Well, you know, everybody, all our regular listeners know, when it comes to merchandising, not only is Brian up on the Star Wars, the Rogue One, the Marvel merchandising, Blu-rays, DVDs, he knows where to get them on sale or for the cheapest amount of money. You know, and I think I showed you that trait not too long ago and you were like, how do you know all this? And I spend a lot of time uh, looking at items and waiting for them to drop in price, which is probably why I, I, I don't have good grades at school. But- so, well, you know, so guys, we're coming into the holiday season and gift purchasing. You want to check out Behind the Lens every week, if not live on iTunes or on MovieSharkDeBlore.com or on AdrenalineRadio.com on the live archive. 
you want to check it out just to hear Brian's shopping pricing tips for the holidays. Yeah, and it'll generally be about Blu-rays. And then also, um, we do the... I just loaded it up right now, so I remember. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, we've, we've got to take care of this. We've got important business here because the countdown... Yes. ...is getting ever closer. It's getting caliente. For my Spanish listeners out there, that, that means hot. It's getting good. I've been telling people that it's it's 52 days away about like 60 days ago. Well, you better let people know what it is we're talking about. Well, I Debbie gives me the opportunity and I, I'm gracious for the fact that she does let me jump on the program and speak about one of my favorite trilogies as well as just entities in the world, Star Wars. One of the best things to ever happen in, in the last 40 years. Uh, probably the next one, the Doors conception. But other than that, the, the Star Wars is the best thing that ever happened out of out of er, before I was born. And like I said, I was telling people that it's been fifty two days away, and today we actually hit the fifty two mark. Fifty two days. Fifty two days for what? For Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Fifty two days, twelve hours, forty eight se- uh, forty eight minutes to go. I and I, I don't, you sent me a link that people are already lining up for Episode Eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rogue One is not falling behind on the Episode Eight. Uh, hype because Rogue One, I was at Walmart not too long ago and they have displays up of, uh, they have television sets set up outside the toy section and they're playing Rogue One trailers, this five minute promo of them filming the movie. And I, and I stood there and watched it like maybe two or three times while my girlfriend was picking out makeup because it's right next to the toy aisle. And yeah, well, when women start picking out makeup, you could stand there for an hour. Yeah, no, I, with her too, I can stand, but it's a couple of days I could be out there. I might as well just be in line for Rogue One, but the time she's done picking out her makeup. But Rogue One, Star Wars Story is coming out. That's 52 days, but Episode 8 is, a, is, is so close right behind it. It's 416 days, 12 hours, and 47 minutes to go until Episode 8. Now, what day, what day does Rogue One release? This, uh, December 16th. Okay. Yeah. And what day does Star Wars Episode Eight release? December 15th. All right. So of next about, year. Of next year, yeah. Next year. 2017 is, uh, is the release of Star Wars Episode Eight, And then Rogue One comes out uh, f- uh, Friday, December 16th, 2016. I'm and, very um, excited. But, I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, it'll come out the 15th. For most people that go watch it. At that 8 o'clock, yeah, yeah the well, nighttime shows, which, which has become a big thing now. You know, when we hit the the 60 mark, I expected movie theaters to f- start selling advanced tickets like they did with mm-hmm. Episode 7. But so far, nothing. Like there has really? been... There, I don't know if it's because of the Halloween season or maybe they're they're doing a, a different marketing ploy this, this time around. Mm-hmm. But I don't see why not. But I remember... Episode 7 was sold out by this point. At this point, uh, when we were 52 days away from, from Episode 7, yeah. it was already... like you, you, I had to wait two weeks to watch it because I, I, I didn't get tickets because I was like, well, I'll just go buy some. No. Not, and the way that movie theaters are, are constructed now where they have the assign, you know, assign your seats, mm-hmm. there's no way that you're going to just go... There's, the days of showing up to a movie theater and just purchasing a ticket and sitting down... Are, are not long gone, but it's very few and far between theaters that I can find. You know, I'm, I'm not big on assigned seating. I believe in just getting there early enough so that you can get the seat that you want yeah. or near the seat that you want. But then again, for the ticket prices today, yeah, I can understand why people do want to have be able to pick their seats because some of these ticket prices are they're up there. Yeah. Would I pay 25 bucks for a ticket to see a movie never? No, you know what? I I don't AMC has these where if you buy if you watch it before noon, they'll it's like 6 7 bucks. Which is about my comfortability range for movie theaters. And typically, you know, when you go to the early matinees, you get, uh, you know, they're not that crowded. And there's no kids. Uh, well, except during the holidays and the summer. Well, yeah, but there's no kids. There's no kids. When 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 the high school starts back up, I just I'm so excited. I'm like skipping through the streets again. No, nobody's going to hit me with their skateboard. I'm not going to be judged. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> the whole idea of Brian skipping through the streets. I skip. You should see me. You know what? I, I skip. It's tradition now. Whenever I do something for the first time and I start doing it more and more, <laughs> I have to do it or else I feel like bad stuff's going to happen. Every time I get in line for Winnie the Pooh at Disneyland, I have to skip through the line. Okay. Well, that is Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. So I skip, I skip through the Winnie the Pooh line. And people, people that work there kind of know me as that, as a guy who skipped through the Winnie, the Winnie the Pooh line. If there's not a lot of people, obviously, if there's kids around, I'm not skipping because I'm a big guy. I can probably... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And we hear the phone. And I'm willing to bet. That once Brian answers that phone, we are going to have the talented John Hickman on the line. So, is is that 
who we have, he's making faces at me. You, you guys, you know, you really have to watch the videos just for the entertainment factor of me talking through glass to Brian. But yes, we now have joining us. Joining us live is the wonderful and talented John Hickman. Welcome, John. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Oh, just fine. Welcome to Behind the Lens. This is a real treat to have you. Oh, uh, it's, it's, the pleasure's all mine. I mean, you have quite quite a, a storied little career going on for yourself right now. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. It, it kind of uh, started kind of crazy, and it's been pretty much nonstop since then. Well, you know, how how in the world did you even come to acting, and for one of your first roles to be True Blood? That is a... Uh it's a very, very, uh, a lot of luck. My phone is, I'm getting some feedback. Um, I did a uh, fundraiser for L.A. Children's Hospital um, a, a few years back, and the uh, Alan Ball, the show's creator, donated a uh, featured walk-on role. And I um, I'm, I was a huge fan of the show, and um, I bid on the uh the experience and got it and uh, flew out to L.A., did the show, um, had an amazing time. And um, as a gift, I sent some of the production people a um, couple of cases of wine said, hey, thank you. I had a blast. It was so much fun. And uh, they invited me back for an episode on season five. Well, uh, flew out to L.A. for an episode on season five. And uh, got to work with uh, Joe Manganiello and Sam Trammell, and which shot this really, really cool scene. And it got cut from 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 the episode, so they invited me back again for season <laughs> six. And um, I got to be a uh, a werewolf. Uh, now, how for for newcomers, new actors, young, older, you know, character actors? How exciting is that to get to be a werewolf? It's awesome. It is really cool. I got to work with real wolves, which was a nothing like I'd ever experienced before. Um, it is uh, it's quite intense. And if you're not in the um, the particular shot, they make the the other cast and the crew. You have to go um, what they call on lockdown. So there's one scene in season six where it's just me and this just enormous beautiful wolf. Oh. It's crazy. Um, and it's a real it's one. Crazy. It's it's not like yes. the Twilight movies where we got CGI ones. No, it's all real. And we actually had to attend a uh, wolf safety course because it's just, I mean, really, truly, I mean, it's just you and the wolf. And you, you kind of have to know what to do. How, mm -hmm. uh, and they're good for about one take. And so <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on you. You know, you got to you got to hit your mark because you know this, you're working with this wild animal, and um, that was one of the things uh, they would let me bring a friend to set as long as there weren't any uh, wild animals. So I, I I couldn't have my uh, my wife at the time; she couldn't be there because of the uh, because of the wolves. Wow, wow that that's some way to to get started in the business because. Were you acting prior to to your adventures on True Blood, or this just um, came out of the not blue? Not really. I had um, I had acting in um, in high school and a little bit in college, but nothing nothing major. I kind of uh, had to pursue um, um, uh, you know my my day job, and um, it's just I mean it, it was completely by accident. I, I mean I've told told that story a, a few times, and. Uh, and with each role, I've, I've, I've tried to get a little better each time and getting more experience. And um, I actually, they had promoted me to, after the season six, uh, to show regular. Well, going into season seven, the writers did away with the werewolf storyline. So I was a, that uh, was a pretty sad uh, unemployed <laughs> werewolf. <laughs> That's pretty sad. That that's very sad. But you know, that's the that's the game in Hollywood. Unfortunately, now you know. When did you decide? When did you decide that you really wanted to pursue acting and go deeper and you know make this more of a full time career? 
Well, the um, after that first day, um, I realized, you know, I'm like, this is this is the coolest thing in the world. If I could get something like pretty regular, then I would pursue it. Um, and everybody at HBO was amazingly nice. Um, although, you know, it, it was a kind of a surreal experience going to set and working with, you know, working on your favorite show. Cause mm-hmm. At the time, that was that was my favorite show. And I've gotten a lot of advice from from several of the cast members. Like, well, I mean, the first, the very first day, I'm working with uh, Anna Paquin, which um, that can be a little intimidating working with the Academy Award winning actress. <laughs> so, I mean, at times I kind of feel like I was over my head, but uh, everybody encouraged me that 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 I could do this. Um, it was an amazing experience. Well, and since then, I mean. Right now, you're in IT, Pierce Brosnan's film, which yes. I saw the, I love that film. Awesome film. The intensity that of that film is just, and in today's, you know, cyber world, it is so it's topical scary. and it's it, very scary. That's an understatement. Very, very scary. And I had to do that film in, um, in Ireland. The whole thing was shot in uh, Dublin, Ireland, which. When I got the role, I was like, there's nothing Irish about me. I, I, I just read that it was filmed in Ireland. I just assumed it was going to be in Ireland. And I was like, okay, I got this. I, I can go to Ireland and work with uh, 007. And uh, got over there and realized that, that the film is supposedly takes place in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So um, funny story about Pierce Brosnan, um, a lady friend of mine that um, – was a huge Brosnan fan wanted to go, and uh, some some production places I can I can uh, bring a, someone to set. Some of them I can't. And he was the nicest, uh, most charming man in the world, in which that scored huge points with her. That uh, very very nice man. He is. I worked with Pierce back in the days of Remington Steel. And he was charming. He was lovely. Very. He was wonderful. And I've interviewed him countless times since then. And he is still as wonderful, as funny, and as warm as he was 35 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That, I, that was, uh, that we actually had some fun after we, we wrapped that night. And uh, he invited me out to um, have a beer after we finished, which is um, a little surreal as well. <laughs> to be drink drinking beer with James Bond, it's, I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> but but you know, you move on from that, and then you're also you're with James Franco in King Cobra. Yes, that was that was uh, an incredible opportunity uh, when I got that role. Anything um, with James Franco is an incredible opportunity. Yeah, he he is so intense. He has a work ethic of not like anyone I've ever seen. And with the, each of these projects I've gotten with him, I've just tried to sit and, and, and learn. You know, he's just so amazing. I mean, it just it blows my mind. Well, because you've got King Cobra, which is out now, along with IT. Then you've also got, coming up, The Vault with Franco and Francesca yeah. Eastwood. Are there, other Fra- are there other Franco projects that you're doing as well? There's. There's actually two more that uh, we've completed. Um, oh, my one gosh. One called Blood, Blood Heist, which was probably my biggest role. Um, I've got several scenes with him. And, uh, um, I mean, it, it, it's going to be it, – it's an amazing movie. Um, and then Blood on Wheels. Um, we all shot those in Ohio. And then um, there's another project that I might be working on with him that um, – I think it starts in, in December, but I don't have. I can't talk about it just yet. Yes, anything you don't talk about, what you can't talk about, because then you won't have the job. Right, right, right. But uh, but, but he, you know, November eleventh, we've got you. Welcome to Willits, and you're in that with Dolph Lundgren. What's going yeah. on here, John? <laughs> What's going on? I, I I wish I could explain it. It's just. Uh, um, a real good friend of mine who's a, uh, produced a lot of these movies, Sean Sangani, uh, with Triple S Entertainment. He's uh, really, really amazingly helped me out and has given me guidance, and, and he's been in the business a long time. Um, 
Willits was uh, Willits was fun. I, I'm, I've, I've seen the, um, the the final cut. It's really really intense. Uh, I got to work with Garrett, Garrett Clayton again, who was in King Cobra, mm-hmm. and um, Karuchi Tran, who is um, very very nice lady, beautiful, great actress. That was a lot of fun. It's, it's, Willits is intense. <laughs> and then you've got a horror movie coming up too, The Harrowing. Yeah, the harrowing. Um, shot that. Actually, I shot that one back to back with uh, Blood Heist and Blood on Wheels. I had three movies, literally back to back. Then the harrowing. Uh, M- Michael Ironside is. Uh, I, he was. I was a big fan of his growing up. Um, you know, from Top Gun and the Show V. Mm-hmm. Um, got to work with him a little bit. Um, it's just. It's been an incredible run. I mean, this. This is. You know. I know that there are probably young actors out there listening to this, and they're like, "What? What? What? You know, <laughs> what is? Are you are you getting a lot of these calls and these roles through referrals? Are you going out on auditions? Are you seeking them out? You know, what's what's happening with you? Because you know, character actors can have, you know, a longevity for performing, you know, unlike most other, uh, unlike, you know, leading actors and actresses who have, you know, more or less many have expiration dates. Character actors never seem to have an expiration date. That is, that's, that's true. Um, most of, um, almost all the characters that I've, that I play are, are kind of bad guys. Um, except for, for King Cobra. I was, Mm -hmm. I was just, uh, that was a small cameo. Um, but, for Blood Heist, um, Harry is a—he's a bad dude. So, and that's—I'm um, kind of getting locked into those those, those particular characters. Uh, do you like? Do you like playing those? Because I know so many I, actors have said they like playing the darker characters because it gives you more to work with emotionally. It does, it, does, it really really does. Um, uh, one of the actors. One, I'll tell you the story about the harrowing. Um, when I got to set, um, after we had done two or three takes, it's a, um, kind of a gunfight sequence. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the other actors said, man, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, oh, gosh, what am I doing? I'm always paranoid that I'm doing something <laughs> wrong. And he's, I said, yeah, sure. You know, I thought he was about to yell at me. And he's like, I just wanted to tell you when you, when you, first time I met you, you got to set. I really didn't think you could pull this character off because you're like the nicest guy in the world. And it's like you just flip the switch and become this this maniac. So that was uh, I'm always scared of doing stuff wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, see that keeps you on edge. That that gives you a little edge to your performance, I think. Uh, yeah, it, it it really does. It does. I'm I'm ready for these uh, these other films to uh, start coming out. Uh, Welcome to Willits will be uh, debuting at the New York City Horror Film Festival. Oh. Um, the, the 11th so kind of excited about that um i've done a little tv besides uh true blood well didn't Um, you do vampire diaries or i did and and um i've gotten hooked up with some of the the production people there i did the originals first Mm -hmm. they were needing um needing a werewolf um this kind of werewolf leader for this wedding and um and in, in it films in Conyers, Georgia, which is about three a three hour drive from my house, mm-hmm. which was was awesome. And then once I did the originals, uh, something came up on the uh, a little cameo on the Vampire Diaries, which my daughter is a huge fan of. I thought <laughs> I'm finally going to impress my kid. Dad scored some points. <laughs> <laughs> so what what is it about with this great career shift now? What is the what is the greatest gift that acting gives you that keeps you wanting to pursue this even more? I would have to say the uh, um, probably the final product that you that when you see on the movie screen, mm-hmm. and you know because you never know how any of this is going to turn out, and to be acknowledged by your peers, like uh, you know James Franco telling me, "Hey man, good job," and I was like. Okay, James Franco just told me good job. That 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 goes a long way. Um, but yeah, just just to be able to uh, uh, 
do a few movies here here and there and uh get to meet a lot of uh a lot of people i've tried to spend a lot of time with uh a lot of the extras on some of these, because that's where that's basically where I started was an as a, a, an extra, mm-hmm. and uh, talking with some of these young young actors and you know giving them encouragement and just you know they're coming to me for advice. I was like, well, I've only been doing this a year. I don't really know, but you know, yes, this this resume in a year. I mean, come on, John, this this is just this is amazing, amazing. It's- yeah, I kind of. It's almost like it's not real. <laughs> it's like I'm, 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 I'm teaching myself. I'm on your radio show now. That, that that's a big deal right there. Oh well, it's it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. You know, and now. and you know, you. I'm going to make Mitch have you come back on the show. You know that, don't you? Awesome. I would love to. I would love to. Mitch yeah. and Mitch and those guys over there are. Have done wonders for me, and I, I, I really appreciate it. You know, big uh, big time PR. They, uh, Sylvia and her team. Yes, and Sylvia's been on the show before, um, but they are one of the finest, most ethical groups yes. of publicists in this industry, and they love catering to the up and comers. They represent Al Coronel, Al who has wow. been on the show, you know, with the last ship and now he's in the new Logan yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um Al, I'm happy to say is a friend of mine and it's because of Sylvia and Mitch and Tiffany and yes. Karen. Yeah. Um Yeah, they do a great job. So, you I've know, I'm really impressed. And um, it's very important to get yourself representation, would you not say? Yes. Oh, totally, totally. I couldn't, there's no way I could do any of this without, without them and, um, people that I trust in the business and, you know, that have, have kind of guided me along the way, um, has been vital. Um, the whole, uh, that's how the whole, the, the whole movie thing started was, um, a guy that I worked with on True Blood that played Samurai. He was friends with Sean, um, that owns Triple S Entertainment. They did a movie together. And I had contacted Sam, and I'm, they were needing some help finishing this movie called All Mistakes Buried. And that's how I met Sean was through Sam. And then Sean and I have done seven films together, you know, over the last year. So that that that's how the movie thing started. Yep. Well, John, unfortunately, you and I are out of time today. Oh, uh, okay. But well, thank you. You're definitely coming back on the show. Anytime. It will be my pleasure. Thank you so much. But in the meantime, people can catch you in IT. It's on video on demand. It's available on other platforms because that's where I saw it. King Cobra with James Franco on the 11th. Welcome to Willits. And then Blood Heist, Blood on Wheels, The Vault, The Harrowing. They're all coming down the pike in the next few months. Yes, absolutely. John Hickman, thank you. Thank you. you Bye-bye. I'll talk to you guys later. Okay, bye-bye. And that was actor John Hickman. So casting people, directors, look him up, check him out. He really, he's got some chops as a character actor, and he's going to be around for a while. And now I am beyond excited to welcome the wonderful Brian J. Terwilliger. Hello, Brian. Good morning. How are you? I am beyond thrilled to be talking to you after watching Living in the Age of Airplanes. Oh, fantastic. I am just I was mesmerized I was swept away my heart soared watching this movie and you wanted me to go running to the nearest airport to go travel somewhere that's great this this is and that and I watched all of your extras all your special features too. oh cool (laughs) this is an amazing documentary Living in the Age of Airplanes. Now, you yourself are a pilot. I am, yes. You have been for eh, more than a little bit of time. Yep, 20 years or so. Yeah, what? This is a whole new way of looking at airplanes and air travel and how integral it is to our life. As to borrow from your own script, you know, fascination to frustration with flying. Yeah. You know, it's with the advent of flying that, you know, the world took off, literally. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. Very true. I find it so ironic that 
a hundred years ago when airplanes, you know, were first invented with the Wright brothers, the fascination was really at an all-time high. And certainly, the next ten or twenty years, um, people were amazed by humans in flight and all the possibilities. It was just incredible, but it was so impractical and dangerous, of course, and cost prohibitive. Uh, and at best, one passenger at a time, you could go a very short distance. Now we have the most options we've ever had. A- aviation has evolved to the best it's ever been, and yet our our view of it is, you know, I'd say arguably at the all-time low of appreciation. Mm-hmm. So there's a real irony in that juxtaposition. And that's that's something that you address head-on with living in the age of airplanes. You have broken this into essentially five chapters, five segments. That the progression is so beautifully done. We've got the world before the airplane, then the portal to the planet, which that one segment alone is one of the most beautiful beautiful travelogues of the world I have ever seen. Then you've got redefining remote because nothing is remote anymore thanks to air travel. The world comes to us, which has one of the a stunning sequence, your flower sequence, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then perspective, changing people's perspective. How do you sit down and decide, well, I'm going to make a film, I'm going to make a documentary about airplanes and flight, and then you pick out this particular tact and then hone in on your specific narrative through line? Well, that was by far the trickiest part, I think, actually, of figuring out how to structure the story because it doesn't have a main character or a natural arc or we're not following a timeline of any sort. Uh, where many documentaries, you know, there's a character arc of some sort of something linear, and there's nothing actually similar to that in this film. It's very conceptual, and it's very much kind of in your head, really, and and it's your own experience coming in, and then you come out the other side of this seeing and thinking differently. But because of that, it is a very tricky thing to structure. So with a thesis of how has the airplane changed the world, there's probably a thousand ways to tell that story. And for me, uh, we did a lot of research. I had a team. We started brainstorming and thinking of all the different possible ways this could come to life in a documentary and then started narrowing that down, ultimately structuring it sort of into parts. But at one point, there were no actual parts. It was conceptually into different sections. But late in the post-production process, did we literally segment it up into the parts, which really helped compartmentalize literally and figuratively, narratively, all of those things. Um, And and it kind of puts it into pieces and makes a sort of linear structure Mm -hmm. to the story because you need the backstory of the world before the airplane before you can really understand that an airport is a portal to the planet. We enter one building and come out another. Uh, You know, in that sort of um, order, it really was important. Um, So it was a very evolutionary process editorially, and in the making of the movie, it continued to just take shape. So it's a it's pretty fascinating, actually. Well, and for me, it's like I'm watching it in your first segment, The World Before the Airplane, and you're going through the wheel 5,000 years ago. The sea connected six continents and allowed us to map the world for the first time. Right. You know, we hit the sky 200 years ago, train, 175 steam engine. I mean, it's the progression. It took me right back to elementary school, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I really did learn all this at some point. Yeah. it's And then in the way it presents it, you know, I, I certainly... We worked really hard to, to make it different than anything you've ever really seen before because typically it gets into all the details and, you know, some of the specifics and, and the milestones and the names of very specific times or places or people that did mm-hmm. very specific things. But in just a few minutes, it takes you through basically the entire history of transportation at a very high level. And the higher level it is and the more broad it is, I think the more impactful it is because it's more emotional mm-hmm. and, and you really you feel it. It's, it's not something you take away and, you know, in this year, did you know in this year this exact thing happened? No, it's not that. It's, it's really putting into perspective in that 200,000-year timeline that illustrates it. You really see through you know, a new lens the actual newness of something that actually feels old and that is really one of the most important things to take away from it oh i mean it's it's so comprehensible and so cogent because okay you can grasp five thousand years ago we got the wheel okay christ was born you know two thousand years ago it gives you great you know right there you've got perspective bc and ad and you just move from there but then what also aids you that I, i just found so stunning was your the disappearance of infrastructure as 
you take us on this visual journey where there is, you know, there is a rock, there's a tunnel, there's a road, there's a car, and then you strip all that away in what looks like very simple dissolves, but it's this great compositing of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I, it's, you know, it was a really cool way to show uh, the obstacles of the earth just inherently, how difficult it is to get from two places between, let's say, Los Angeles and New York. Uh, I mean, the amount of infrastructure required, even now. I mean, if you were to really drive a car and see how many times you're going over a bridge or one road goes over another or uh, you know, dirt was put in to level an area so it was flat for a road, like there's constant, and how many tunnels, it's just this constant struggle of the obstacles to get between two points. But all this infrastructure has already been made, but that's the only way we get around is all of this has been done. and You, you forget uh, to get through to the other side of the mountain, that there's all this infrastructure. Before, you were walking over that. But then the airplane sort of puts all of that behind, and all you need is infrastructure in New York and, and Los Angeles, and that's it. There's nothing in between. A mile of runway on either side, everything in between becomes irrelevant. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But, I mean, it, that is all. The deconstruction is just absolutely beautiful. I mean, the train, I was particularly moved by the train tracks. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. The, the, I was actually in Kenya. It was very difficult to find train tracks that we could make disappear like that (laughs) in a a wide open area because many train tracks uh, or areas where there are train tracks are in, it's just really hard to find for some reason. It seems like it'd be easier, but there's always buildings or power lines or something right around train tracks, no matter where we would go. And so we found this really cool spot in Kenya where once the train tracks disappear in our visual effects shot, it's just like a field. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's just the simplicity and the elegance of it, and it just strikes you because. And adding to that is, of course, James Horner's scoring behind that, mm-hmm. which just helps. But you know, you mentioned Kenra, Kenya, so this this is truly you. You really celebrate the whole idea of flight and travel and airplanes because you went to ninety five places, eighteen countries. You hit all seven continents. Right. How do you logistically plan out a film like this and pick the points that you want to go travel to to showcase? You go all the way to the South Pole. You go to the end of the world, the tip of South America. You're in the Maldives, which I have to say, that split screen, the underwater camera work with the seaplane, Mm -hmm. stunning. Oh, thank you. Absolutely gorgeous. How do you decide the locations and where you're going well you know it's a big it's a big world and as many places as we went uh, it's truly just a fraction of the possible places we could have gone so um you know i guess sort of dividing into segments um trying to find remote places that are going to be very visually appealing and unique to the viewer not necessarily places they've seen before or seen a lot of uh the maldives and the south pole are, are two of those very remote places where the airplane is critical to getting around and they're just not things i knew a lot about or have seen a lot of a lot of material on mm-hmm. before so um that's how those were chosen and then uh let's see for like ancient civilizations we went to four different ancient sites uh and four different continents it was important that they were completely far away from each other and on separate continents so we chose rome chichen itza cambodia and egypt and um so you know a lot of it was just we only have one story to tell. The thing is less than an hour long, and um, sort of geographically looking at looking at a map of the world, really, and how to tell the story. And there's many different story points that could be told in different places, but where would it make the most sense for this to, to tell the broadest story possible? Um, and, you know, and you can't have infinite locations. It's you know, it can only be so many. It doesn't feel like 95 places. I don't think when you see the film. No, not at all. No. Yeah, because you can't. You really have to feel like you really are in a place and, and are digesting it, and so it has to be, um, you know, it has to be a flow to it. So, yeah, you know, it took a lot of pre-planning to figure that out on paper, and then the logistics of executing each shoot. But um, you know, week by week, month by month, it all came together. Yeah, and I know this stretched over a six-year time period. Mm-hmm. You were shooting for what four four of those years. Uh, closer to two in the actual shooting okay. part, but the, but the pre-production was on the on the front end of that, and then post-production for 
a while after a couple of years of editing. So, it, yeah, it stretched out to full time for me uh, just over six years. I, and, you know, I think it's, it bears noting here that you use the same camera, you use the Alexa, mm-hmm. the seventh one ever made. Yep. That was your camera traveling all over the globe. Before it was, you know, the weight has been reduced somewhat since you were doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were no, there, you might get away with no extra baggage fees if you were checking it in sure. the plane now. You know, yeah. what led you to the Alexa? Well, it was just coming out. It was the summer of 2010, and we'd uh, seen some camera tests and knew it was coming out, and, and everything we heard about it was just really it was going to be this revolutionary camera and it was also something that potentially we could buy where a lot of the cameras we could only rent and it was important that we buy one and it was we felt the best camera that we could actually buy um and we needed to have it all the time that's why it was important to buy and not rent it because we were traveling so extensively and our shoots often would go long or we would go to another location and wouldn't come back and if we had a rental that was dictating that we return to Los Angeles to get the camera back, it would be a, a real big problem for us. So it was really the best camera we felt that we could actually buy, but it wasn't yet available, and this was in the summer of 2010. But mm-hmm. um, we were able to get on a list and sort of make an appeal to the company, and we had some meetings, and they loved the project, and, and somehow, before you know it, we were one of the very first to have it, and it was absolutely fantastic to have that camera and, and of course it looks amazing and of course hand in hand with that camera you've got two of the finest cinematographers around working with you yep. you've got andrew warzuski um and for those that may not know andrew has been a dp on dancing with the stars for a number of years yep he has. uh That's and then of course doug allen who worked with the ultimate challenge of documentarians, Werner Herzog, when he did Encounters at the End of the World. Mm-hmm. And Doug did your South Pole sequencing. Uh, with Doug? Oh, Doug Allen. Doug, Doug Allen, Allen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he did. Absolutely did. What led you to Andrew and Doug for these projects? Now, Andrew, very rooted in documentaries. I mean, a huge. I'm a huge fan of, you know, Dear Mr. Watterson mm-hmm. that he shot. Cool. Uh, and, of course, Doug, I'm a huge fan of what he did with Werner. What led you to the, these two gentlemen, and how excited were they to get to play with the brand-new Alexa? Well, yeah, we were all, I think everybody was so thrilled to have this camera. Uh, Andrew, you know, is just such, he's amazing, incredibly talented uh, guy. He just totally understood this project from our very first conversation, how important it was to tell the story with this camera and, and the visuals were really a huge part of the storytelling and it, we kind of approached it like a commercial in the sense of how much care and thought and time went into each and every shot and it you know he didn't even flinch at, at that so that was really really important to me and you know we got along great and just traveling the world together it was um, you know a very memorable time I think indeed and and the South Pole was so extreme uh, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to, you know, basically deal with the elements because I'm not a camper and you're camping, <laughs> believe it or not, in tents at the South Pole and in Antarctica. Um, and it's so cold, negative 40 degrees, it's almost 10,000 feet elevation, pretty extreme conditions. So because I was sort of new to all of that and, and Andrew also had not had any experience in those conditions and only two of us could actually get there, just limitations, um, logistically getting down that far, um, we researched Doug and found him, and he has the experience of getting to Antarctica for, I think, 30 years in a row, 30 Mm -hmm. summers. He has filmed some project in Antarctica, and just, you know, we needed to bet on somebody, and in case I or Andrew, (laughs) you know, couldn't hang (laughs) in those conditions, we needed somebody that was like a sure thing, Uh, and Doug was that guy. As it turns out, he actually had never been to the South Pole. And all the trips he's ever done to Antarctica, 30 years in a row, the South Pole is some place he's never been because it really is so extreme. It's not just Antarctica. It's getting all the way to the pole, which takes two more flights to get there. It's so far away. It's incredible. So anyway, he, he, was, he was fantastic. And working with the camera there, um, you know, it was incredible. Got all the shots we needed and, and never failed us. You know, I'm curious because because the, the Alexa was so new at the time, 
and you're going into such extreme conditions, the South Pole, you're in the desert in Egypt, you're you know, in the jungles, you're in the Maldives. How did the camera hold it? Were there any considerations that you had in terms of sand or cold? Because I know with so many types of equipment, the, the elements impact the equipment that you're working with. Yeah, we actually had, I think there was a freezer, it was somewhere in Long Beach or San Pedro, where they, it's like a, a fish freezer, I think, where they actually, um, I guess when stuff's coming from uh, off the ships and they need to freeze it, it's like the coldest freezers anywhere in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. I think they're negative 20 or negative 30 degrees, basically the coldest possible environment you could do a simulation in. So we brought the camera in there to see how it would work. This is before we ever went to the South Pole because mm-hmm. none of the actual testing of the camera ever pushed it this far. And uh, it, it was fine. Everything worked. So we knew that it would work and you know, nothing, nothing would stick or the components wouldn't freeze or, or the camera wouldn't somehow just stop functioning. So we did. that was the main weather testing we had done. As far as the hot places, dust and sand, um, the cameras are always protected with, um, you know, different things that wrap over them. So there was always precautions made. Nature photography, I mean, that stuff happens all the time. Sure. You just got to be really careful. And the, the biggest thing is when you change lenses and getting, making sure no dust gets into where the sensor is. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest concerns. But that's pretty much, we're always really aware of that. So it's always done in the car or the most sterile environment we can, we can do it in. What lenses were you using to shoot this? Uh, Ingenue is the glass. I think 24 to 290 was our that was our primary lens, mm-hmm. uh, but we also had uh, a couple wide-angle lenses, uh, prime lenses. So I think we always had at least three, if not four, lenses at all times with us. But the most versatile was the 24 to 290. Wow! Yeah, I figured you had some primes thrown in there. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And for a lot of the, the wide wide-angle stuff or all the underwater stuff, um, that, those were all wide angles. Yeah, and, and again, the underwater stuff is just, it is just breathtaking. Oh, thank you. It is breathtaking. You know, and of course, we've got Harrison Ford narrating this. There is no, it's like, you do a baseball movie, you want Kevin Costner narrating. You do a movie about flight, you want Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> Any arm twisting involved there to get him to do this? Well, I was, I was very fortunate because my my first film was on aviation as well, and it was much more pilot-focused and about the romance of flying and why air, uh, aviators love to fly and what, you know, what that passion is that, that everyone seems to share that loves to fly. That it's was your 1-6 one, right, one, right about exactly. the Van Nuys Airport. That's the one. Yeah. So Harrison had seen that, and we had sort of met in the year or two after and had been acquaintances since, and um, so... When I had this film coming around that, it needed, that I needed a narrator for, I, you know, I had him in mind and wanted to just see if it was something he'd be interested in. So finally the day came when I was ready to show him a cut of it. It had a temporary narrator in it at the time. Um, and so, yeah, within just a few days, I think less than a week actually, of reaching out saying, I'd love to show you this cut, uh, I was you know, at his place watching the DVD or the Blu-ray with him and... and uh, totally connected with it and understood exactly what this was and what it could be and he felt he could contribute and pretty much said yes on the spot. So uh, I was very fortunate there was no arm twisting at all. (laughs) It was great. Yeah, so how do you sit down and you and your editor, Brad Besser, how do you actually sit down and tackle 260 hours of footage? Oh, man, it was... uh, it was a lot of footage. I mean, it was tough because we had sequences that, you know, Brad was actually assembling a lot of temp sequences, and rough cuts and assemblies, um, things, different versions, different different ways that different locations could sort of tell the story they were trying to tell. And then we kind of get through it and look at, um, a lot of it was actually ended up being done on paper as well because there's just so much material and so many ways to conceptualize and put together through these visuals mm-hmm. the different types of ideas that we want to convey. So they were just, uh, it, was, it was actually really overwhelming because there were so, it was basically endless options. We had so much footage, you know, 260 times the amount of footage that the length of the film is. So um, it was really, really uh, a puzzle, I would say, because pacing, because when it comes down to when you, even when you have the different sequences, 
and the different topics and scenes that are going to ultimately make the, the film and put together the story, then you have to pace it and finding the right pacing and putting the right scenes in the right place that are putting the right story elements in the right order, but you're also always concerned about just the pacing of, mm-hmm. of everything. So it was a, a constant dance, and you change one thing and it affects something else. Uh, we never had the fallback of that linear story where, right. where it was obvious that you have to include this or you have to exclude that. It was something that was at every single turn, yet almost infinite options. Well, and of course, what helps with your pacing also is the cadence and rhythm of Harrison's voice, but also James Horner's score, which, uh, the best word to describe it, it is a titanic score. Oh, wow. Thanks. It is, and the fact that he was also a pilot. Yeah. You know, I, I think just makes it even more bittersweet and poignant that he is the one that scored this documentary. Yeah, he... He really knocked it out of the park. He, he, like Harrison, really believed in the film and understood its message and the power of its message and the importance of you know, what the movie's trying to say and, and how important the music is in that story, where a lot of times I think the music you know, plays a supporting role or sometimes music is, plays a, a very minor role, and, and maybe that's how it's supposed to be in certain films. But in this film, it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be right up front. And it tells a big part of the story between the narrator, the visuals, and the music. That's pretty much what you have. Those three things kind of work in concert together, and they all play very strong leading roles. And I think he enjoyed that part very much um, to have the music. And I think so it's integral. I think it shows most in your sequence of flower going from Kenya to Alaska. The music there really sets the pace, and you really feel the urgency of time and why you need flight yeah. to carry out the mission of delivering Kenyan roses to Amsterdam to then get shipped to FedEx in Memphis. Thank God there was no bad weather because FedEx shuts down when there's bad weather. And then to get it up to Alaska. So it was, the music was just so key. So yeah. key. Yeah, it really was. And I'm so excited that your soundtrack for this is available tomorrow along with the DVD and Blu-ray. I know. The, the day has come. The October 25th, it will all be available. I mean, this is, I'm just, I am so thrilled because, you know, as I said, I went through all your special features and this is something I can't encourage people enough to get this DVD, get the Blu-ray. Don't even, you can look at it on iTunes, but I got to tell you, this is something you're going to want to go back to and look at time and time again and look at all these special features, some of your behind the scenes stuff, some of your VFX, and of course the beautiful recreation of the biplane sequence from out of Africa. Yeah. I, th- it, this is, Brian, this is just, I am so in love with this document. <laughs> wow, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> I, I would have loved to have seen more than 47 minutes. I know. Well, there, there was a lot more, but it's, they were the best 47 minutes to tell the story. I, I feel confident with that. Oh, well, let me tell you, it definitely is the best for me. And unfortunately, we're out of time today. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, Brian, this has been an absolute an absolute delight. I was so excited to have you on the show, even before I watched the documentary. And then once I saw it, I, I just was like, oh, my God. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, everybody is going to want to go take a trip somewhere. <laughs> Brian, thank you. And everybody can get Living in the Age of Airplanes and the soundtrack everywhere tomorrow. Yep. Great. Thank Thank you, you, Brian. I hope you will come back on the show again. I'd love it. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And we are actually, we're out of time, aren't we, Brian? Just about. He's nodding his head. He's not talking. He's nodding his head. So. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Well, next week, we are going to have in studio Oscar winner, sound designer and editor Mark Mangini is going to be with us for the full hour. So, and it'll be Halloween. And, of course, one of Mark's first films that he did, Sound On, the original Poltergeist. So this is going to be a fun show for Halloween next week. And, of course, coming up in November, Jane Clark is going to be back with us. The head crazy bitch is going to be back talking crazier bitches. We're going to have the filmmakers from 
the new film All in Time. Ben Melman, who directed I Blame Monty Hall, is going to be with us. And we're going to have the cast and crew of The House on Pine Street coming up as well. Guys, we're already booking into December for Behind the Lens, so you don't want to miss a single show of what's coming up. So, since we're out of time, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.